just, I, I cannot tell you how excited I am about what is ahead for us. And so we're going to spend a couple of weeks just dealing with some specific ways that God's made us that are nuanced in Luke chapter 22. So if you'll grab your copy of Scripture, open to Luke 22, you'll find that on page 1,213 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, it'll be very helpful for you to look at what I'm saying because as I go, I'm going to just sort of talk through some of the things that we've already seen and uh, draw your attention because I want you to see what God has shown me and what I believe God has for us to see this morning uh, from this chapter. And then from there, we'll springboard into uh, all sorts of different places. So if you're a note taker, uh, then you want to have your pen and paper ready and also uh, just bless you. It's an indication of the guarantee of your salvation and the uh, possession of the Holy Spirit when you take notes. Just letting you know that. Okay, let's pray and then we'll, then we'll study together. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. It's such a great gift to us and we're so blessed to possess this perfect and errant gift. And God, we pray now that you'll use it to speak into our hearts, God, as we celebrate you in Scripture. God, I pray that you'll just give me clarity of mind and speech and that your spirit, he will direct and guide all that I say. And Father, uh, we need you to grant us ears to hear and hearts that would be uh, Tilled and ready to receive the seed of your word. And we'll give you glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start by talking about made for community. Made for community. And I, I want you to see as we look at what we've covered. I mean, all I want you to do is just focus on the headings of, of Luke chapter 22. And just look at uh, what's going on here. The, the, the chapter opens with just a brief indication that Judas has now placed his uh, plan in action to betray Jesus. And the scripture says in verse 4, So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray Jesus to them. And then from there, we return to the narrative of Jesus preparing the upper room for his disciples where he's going to share the Passover meal. And so the Jerusalem is flooded with people coming to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is assembling his close family of disciples together. They're going to share that together in the upper room. And so they're preparing that. Then they they have the Lord's Supper where Jesus institutes the reality that we'll continue to do that and that He is the Passover Lamb and that it's His blood that allows the death angel to pass over our lives. And in the midst of that, Jesus predicts that His betrayer, the one who will betray Him, is in, uh, in His company that is there with them. And it's interesting that the disciples do not immediately point to Judas but that they don't know who it is. It's not evident. And so they're all questioning, is it me? Is it me? Is it him? Is it you? And so they, they, there's confusion. But that's important that Scripture tells us that. Then it immediately leads us into this phenomenally uh, just useful and important uh, text about greatness in the kingdom of God. And Jesus explains that greatness in the kingdom is the opposite of greatness in the world. And that greatness in the kingdom of God, the way to be great as a Christian is to serve. Now that is extraordinary because it has got to be one of the most overlooked truths in all of Scripture. I, I just remember the... The, the anticipation in my heart as I was preparing the, that section, you know, a couple of weeks ago as I was going to deal with that section of Scripture and, and uh, the thinking of all these things. And I, I remember that I was sitting at my desk and I, was, I, was, I had just been meditating on that Scripture for days and days and days about God. I, oh, if you, could, if you could just get us to really get this. I mean, we have such a phenomenal church and so many amazing servants. But if we all in one accord just got a hold of this, if the church in the United States got a hold of this reality, how drastically different would we be? And I was sitting at my desk and, and the little ding sound came. You know, that means you, you got a, an email. And so I looked down and, and I checked my email and there's a, an email from a, a sister Baptist church. And here's what it said. It said, um, we're looking for 
a paid nursery worker. So if you know anybody who's qualified and would like to make some extra money, uh, uh, we, we need, we're, we're hiring a paid nursery worker to come and to uh, work on Sundays for us. Now, if you were thinking about this text, do I need to say anything else? There's something way, way, way wrong with that. If greatness is serving, if the illustration of greatness is children, I mean, you can't ask for a better word picture of the opposite of what Scripture teaches than that right there. Thank God that's not us. And thank you. Many of you, after that sermon, have have stepped up and, and we've... I've uh, got several of you that are, are have uh, agreed to teach a children's Sunday school. Going to work with uh, Brother Daniel and take on a class. And uh, you don't know that yet, Daniel, but I'll be letting you know. I know. Now you know. He's just sitting there like, really? What just happened? Yeah. Blessings just fell from heaven right on you right there, brother. And uh, some of you have agreed to, to help in, in uh, children's church. And so thank you. For those of you who have stepped up and, and are, are uh, just being a part of what God's doing, and for those of you that God's working on and you're not yet, haven't, you know, committed yourself to that, let's roll. Come on, let's go. Greatness is serving. I mean, if, 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 if I have to compel you to want to be great in the kingdom of God, there's a problem. There's a problem. That ought to just make you just like a heat-seeking missile. What do I, what, where can I serve? What can I do? Then, he, then the, the chapter moves to the, this predicted denial of Peter. And so Jesus uh, informs Peter that there's going to be a sifting of him specifically. And that this sifting, as we talked about, is going to, be, is going to take place in order to prepare Peter for what God has in store. And, and uh, he says that before the rooster crows, that you're going to, Deny me. You're going to deny me three times. And so that's an astounding uh, prediction there. And then Christ talks about the the, the conflict that's coming. He he talks about the mission. We talked about this last week and how he's uh, preparing his disciples to send them out to accomplish a specific mission and what the weapons of that warfare are going to be or not the weapons of the world. Then Jesus goes and prays in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he takes his disciples with him. And if you read all the gospel accounts, this is in all gospel accounts, you find all these different information. When you read all of them and pull it together, you find all these interesting things that Jesus does. Like, for example, he takes Peter, James, and John and separates them from the twelve and takes them even, even further in with him. And so this, this, he takes all of them with him and then he takes a, another smaller group that's the, the inner circle, his closest uh, allies or confidants, I guess you'd say. He takes them further in with him. Then Judas shows up uh, and executes his, his evil plot to betray Jesus with a kiss. Betrays him with a kiss and brings uh, the religious leaders and they arrest Jesus. And then, of course, we have the account of Peter actually denying uh, Christ as he's uh, by himself and he's standing there, uh, you know, warming himself around a fire and Jesus is being uh, falsely accused and, and uh, just, you know, bera- just berated before uh, people in public and, and they ask Peter, oh, don't you know him? Aren't you one of his disciples? And he uh, denies that he knows him and, and completely turns his back on him, not once, not twice, but three times. And then we talked about how in John chapter 21, Jesus shows up after his resurrection. He shows up uh, and finds the disciples back fishing. And uh, he invites them to shore. He invites them to come and sit and eat breakfast with him on the shore. And in the course of that, he restores Peter by asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says to Peter, well, then feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Very profound uh, uh, statement there in the restoring of Peter. And so this is what we've seen so far. Now, here's what I want to draw your attention to. I want you to see the competing agendas within the context of what I've just said. That there are two diametrically opposed agendas that are 
careening and clashing into one another right here before us. And it would be uh, it would be foolish for us to miss the reality of what's happening here and how it applies to our own lives. I think there's some very practical help that we can gain by looking at these two agendas. On one hand, we've got the agenda of Jesus. He's clearly doing... I mean, it's Jesus has got something going. He's not just randomly doing these different things. He is specifically uh, putting things in place that are instructive to us. But then on the other side, we've got the agenda of Judas which is really the agenda of Satan. But since Satan doesn't start with a J, I like Judas better. So we've got the agenda of Jesus and the agenda of Judas colliding into one another, these competing agendas. Now, Judas, let's talk about him for a minute. Judas represents the danger that one faces of standing on the doorstep of heaven and yet winding up in an eternal hell. Judas is is such a compelling uh, figure in Scripture because he hears the truth. He sees the miracles. He feels the power of God. He, He feels that. He tastes of the grace of God. He enjoyed the fellowship of God. He even joined the ministry. He was part of the team. He, But he was an imposter. He was a counterfeit. He learned to play the game called church. He never trusted his life to Jesus as Lord. Yet he was so close. He was so embedded with, with all of the... With, he shared every experience that the other 11 shared. He professed Christ, but he didn't possess Christ. He knew about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus. I want us to think about this for a second because it's important. It's important this morning in a time and a place where if I stood here and talked about Judas all morning, every mind in this room would be running. You'd have people's faces in your mind. As I went through descriptive uh, categories of this Judas, you'd think about people. Because we've all seen them. And it's elusive. And our tendency is to... Uh, we, we, we have a tendency to... We want to think good thoughts. We all do. And I'm glad of that. And, 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 and people who don't want to think good thoughts are, are really just uh, a chore to be around. But at the same time, sometimes those good thoughts tend to override our wisdom and judgment and lead us to places that we just convince ourselves things are true that they're not. And so how, how did this Judas, how does this happen? How, what, let's think about sin and what sin accomplished in Judas's life. Let's think about what specifically sin does when it comes into our life. How it, how it bends us and turns us in a, in a, in a counter direction to where God is, is calling us and moving us. You see, sin is going to call us toward the things that please us. It's going to draw us to the lusts of the flesh, the things that the natural man desires. That's what sin wants to place in our heart. It wants to place at the forefront of our mind. Paul describes uh, people in the church as enemies of the cross. And he says that they can be identified by this One specific trait. Here's what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. You know this feeling? Weeping. Because they were there. They're inside. We, We know them. That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, how do we identify them? Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. And whose glory is their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. You see what Paul is teaching us here? That it's, it's a, it's an inward bend. It's a bend. Sin wants to draw us into what we desire. Our fleshly desires. The things that we want to do. It's a self-centeredness that sin draws us to. And it's going to cause us to live lives for ourselves, to exist, to please us, if you will, driven by desires. 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, something similar when he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in futility of their mind. Now, he says, here's what we ought to do. Having these these Gentile, the lost people, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness in their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. You see, it's an inward. That's what sin wants to do. It causes us, listen, before God saved me, I lived to please me and so did you. That's what we did. That's how you exist apart from Christ. And here's what sin does is it causes us to want to please ourselves and please the flesh. It's going to cause us to live in a certain way that we were never designed to live. Because what it's going to do is going to draw us, it's going to isolate us. Sin always wants to isolate you from the pack. It wants to bring you out from the, the group of people that you're supposed to be with and isolate you on your own, making you vulnerable. Now, there's many ways I can illustrate to you how, how I, I know and you can know that God created us to be in community. One of those ways is that for all of you who have children, you know this to be true because you've seen in your children at a very young age before they were never taught this. No one ever showed them this. It's just a natural thing for a child can be in their room playing by themselves. I've, I've seen this. I don't know how many times in my own home I'd go in. I'd hear Kayla would sound like she was having a birthday party in her room. And I would think, are there a bunch of kids here? And I'd go in her room and she'd be all by herself. And I'd say, honey, uh, what are you doing? Do you want daddy to come in here and play with you? No, dad, I've got all my friends here. (laughs) Oh, okay. And she'd walk me around her classroom and she'd show me every kid's name in every desk. And she'd tell me who was being obedient. And then it was always a boy that had to go to the principal's office. I don't know why that was. Always. But now, why do kids make up their friends? Because God created us to have friends. And so even when we're alone, we we create community because that's how God created us. We're communal people created by a triune God who exists in all of eternity in the community of the Trinity. See, we don't just have a God by Himself. We have, we have a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All together, one God together in community. Intra-Trinitarian community. And so that's we're created in His image. But you see, what happens is when I live for me, according to Scripture, which is what sin does, when I live for me, I deny... The, the true nature of my humanity, the, the place in me that was meant to mirror that which God uh, exists in. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this. What have we concluded? That if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That you see, the Christian is, is unique in the sense that the Christian exists in this world, yet different from the world. In the world, but not of the world. Because we don't live for ourselves. Because God has indwelled us and, and, and put His Spirit in us that compels us to live for other people. Which is denying sin. Understand that all of this is the same thing, just a different way of saying it. Sin causes us to look inwardly. And when we look inwardly, we begin to be consumed with the desires of the flesh. And we live like those who do not know God. Because God is a God in community that created us to live for others. To live for others. That's why the the primary principle of successful marriage is is that you put your spouse above yourself. If you don't do that, you are going to be forever in a chain reaction of trouble in your marriage. There's no other way to do it because it's a picture of how Christ loved the church. And in order for it to work, you have to put your spouse above yourself. And if you are in a marriage and you or your spouse is living for themselves, it's a train wreck. Because that's not what God intended. That's not Christian marriage. Understand. And so sin in Judas's heart, what did it do? How did it 
work in his heart. It drove him. As the chapter opens, where is Judas? Interestingly enough, all 11 of the disciples are together. Judas isn't there. And the Bible says he went his own way. That's not an accident. When you succumb to sin, it separates you from the pack. So the agenda of Judas is to separate. Meanwhile, everything Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 22 is building this community. I find it fascinating that Jesus goes through all this painstaking uh, attention and detail uh, to have the, the Passover meal with these men that he's called so close to him. That it's all about this community that he has, that he, he brings them in. And he even brings in Judas. And then when he goes to pray, he doesn't just get up and leave and say, guys, listen, I'll be back. He goes, what does he do? He takes them with him. And then he, even when he goes further in to be very intimate with the Father, he takes those closest to him in. It's community all the way through. Don't you see? What does Jesus do when he restores Peter? It's not just a random event. He restores Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And three times he restores him for all three times. But when he says, feed my sheep, what is he calling him to? He doesn't say, now go and just live a great life on your own. No. He, he says, feed my sheep. Come back into the family of God and minister in the family. He's calling him back to community. Where was Peter when he was denying Christ? Isolated from you see this? There's two agendas competing here. And I want you to see that when you rail against community in your heart, you're succumbing to the will of Satan for you. You were designed by God to be in close proximity to other believers. It is the absolute, undeniable, overriding principle of Scripture that just jumps off the page. Every time you turn the page, you see, sin, it messes everything up. If you think about it, when, when, when you, when, when a brother or sister is overcome by sin or, or there's a, 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 a Judas among us that's uh, masquerading as a believer. One of the things you'll notice is, is that the high offense, it's always interesting to me to listen to what someone is upset about. And when the high offense is, Wrong perpetrated against them. It's, it makes me scratch my head. I'm like, I'm not saying that what was, what was done to you wasn't wrong. But isn't the high offense the sin against God? Yes. But sin causes you to just negate that detail. Well, look what they did to me. No. No. First, look at what they did to God. Second, you can examine what they did to you. Sin is against God and God primarily. And it seeks to separate. So I want you to, I want you to just let this settle in your heart. There is an antisocial nature of sin. I tell you, I've said this a hundred times in here. That when you, when you feel this uh, compulsion from within... And you are struggling as to, now, I, I don't know, Pastor, is this the Spirit of God leading me to do this? Or is this just me leading me to do this? What is it leading you to do? If you want to know if it's uh, Satan trying to bait you into something, then all you need to do is say, well, where is it leading me? And guarantee he's leading you away from fellowship and community. That's his agenda. And if it's driving you towards, then that's God. And... Just to make it easy, just say, well, what do I want to do in my flesh? That's always easy for me. And then do the opposite. There's a very fascinating verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. As I was thinking about this and thinking about Judas, here's what the Scripture says. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to his labors nor is his eye satisfied with riches. Is that not the eulogy of the man who betrayed Jesus for riches, who worked 
How hard was it to spend those three and a half years masquerading as something he wasn't? Time after time after time. How much work did it take for him to subdue the urge to, uh, to, to, to fall in line with what he was seeing and sensing around him? And yet he pulled off uh, all of this masquerade. Now, now, I understand the sovereignty of God and the work of God in the whole plan, but you can't negate the responsibility of man in this either. And so we're, we're looking at the human Judas... And we're saying, how is it that he was he worked so hard to do this? And then upon betraying Jesus. The book of Acts, Luke goes on to record the demise of Judas. That Judas was beside himself with grief, realizing what he had done. But it was too late. He had taken his money and he had bought a a plot of land and he hurled himself off a cliff and committed suicide. And you know where Judas is today? He's laboring in the agony that he tried to leave. You see, that's what Ecclesiastes is giving us right here, that this person who was alone. You see, it wasn't that Judas was physically alone. Some of you this morning, you have people around you. You would say, I'm not alone. I rode here with people. I have people around me right now. But you're alone. Everywhere Judas went, he had people with him, but he didn't really have people with him. People weren't inside his life. He he was masquerading. And I'm challenging you this morning to examine yourself and say, do I have people in my life who are part of my life? Am I walking alone? And now I know that there's some Some relatively good reasons why people walk alone. I want to address a couple of those reasons. I think the most prominent reasons, and 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 I'm not saying that that they're all just absolutely worthless. I think they have some validity, but that doesn't mean you uh, you need to uh, not do what you're supposed to do. So let's look at a couple of them. The first one I want to look at would be inexperience. One of the reasons why we walk alone is just simply inexperience. Some of you are new to all of this, and the truth is is that you've never experienced. Koinonia. You've never experienced close Christian fellowship. You, you don't know. You haven't walked with the Lord long enough to have ever really known relationship where people really know who you are. They know you're the good and the bad and the ugly and, and yet they love you. You've, you've yet to really open yourself up and, and trust people and let them in. And so therefore you're resistant to this idea of community. And I understand that. Some of you, Use an excuse of disposition. You say, well, I'm just not an outgoing person. I'm not the kind of person who likes to, to share or that's just not the way I am. You know, I, I don't, I, I can't really open up to people. I, I, don't, I feel insecure about that. I've always been that way. I've, I've never really, maybe, maybe, you know, I, I've been rejected in the past. And so I just can't, I, I, it's just the way I am. And maybe it's not right. It's kind of like, well, I just have a bad temper. That's the way I am. Well, well, that doesn't change God's purpose in creating you for community. You may have a disposition that's counter to that. But let me tell you something. The person you're listening to talk right now was the shyest person you'll ever meet. I just shut down. I couldn't. I just take zeros in speech class. Zip. Just give me a zero. I couldn't stand up and talk. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. I'd break out in hives. I mean, I was just a wreck. So don't give me the disposition excuse. I still get a little, I mean, I, I struggle sometimes like with, you know, five or six people. I'm not comfortable. It's just not, you know, I'm just a shy person by nature. I'm telling you, it's true. Another one would be fear. Fear of the unknown. Well, well I just don't know. Well, I don't know, I don't, I don't know who's going to be in my group. What if everybody's weird? Well, probably somebody's going to be weird because let's face it, look around you. I mean, you spread us out. There's going to be a weirdo in every group. Okay. That's just going to happen. Right. So, okay. Amen. You know, you, you're, you're afraid because what if someone's going to ask me a question? I don't know. Right. Uh, so I keep a list of, of, you know, for, for, for 20 years. I, I've been here and I keep a, a list in, in my 
journal, you know, I keep a list of all of the mistakes I made and all the mistakes that were made with me, especially when I was a young believer and I was first coming up in the Lord. And so because I don't want to repeat those, I want to learn because I make plenty of mistakes. I don't need to repeat ones that were made with me. One of those is that one issue right there. The first small group I ever got invited to. I wish I was petrified. I wanted to divorce my wife for signing me up for this thing. So I have to go to these weirdo people's house for dinner. So we go there. I've told this story before. So I have to go there. And I'm totally petrified. I don't want to be there. They're all weird. They're not like me. I know that. And so, he, But I'm stuck there anyway. And we go in there. And what is the brilliant idea they have for the first little icebreaker activity? Understand something. I, this is Tony. Grew up atheist. Never held a Bible in his hand. Don't, still got cellophane on it. I don't even know there's two testaments don't know that don't it couldn't tell you so then i get in there and the first little icebreaker is we're gonna play scripture trivia i'm like uh okay so everyone draw a card uh so at that point i'm thinking okay do i just say i got to go to the bathroom or do i i mean how do i get out fake a heart attack i mean how do i get out and so i just reluctantly grab the card i'll never forget and the card says the the three hebrew children no clue. I don't know what you're talking about. So we're in the kitchen and we're mingling around. So I'm mingling right over to Lisa. And I'm like, so, hey, uh, look what I got. And so she leans over. Now, I understand. She leans over and whispers in my ear, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if you've never heard that before. I, so when they asked me, I said, it's Meshach, Rakashach, and Hakashach. I don't know. I, I, something like, and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, woohoo. I don't even know what I just said. <laughs> We're not going to do that to you. Okay? We're not going to have Bible trivia uh, as an icebreaker. That's a bad game. That's a bad game. Play that with your family. So, I understand you're afraid, but that's a, don't, you don't have to be afraid. What about the past? Some of you are, 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 are walking alone because of your past. Because you've been severely hurt in the past. You've been wounded deeply in the past. And because those wounds are still fresh and, and sore and you don't want to go there again. And you've trusted and been burned and so you don't want to do this again. And I understand that. But listen, it still, again, doesn't negate the design of God for you to be. You're outside the will of God. You are, you are actually using the pain of your past as an idol in your life. You know how you're going to get through that? You know how every one of us in here has gotten through all the mistakes of our past, all the hurt in our past? Together. That's how we've gotten through it. Every healthy person in this room got healthy together. That's, no one did it on their own. No one. It's a, it's a group effort. And then maybe the most, Heinous of all of them would be busyness. And it is a, it's an epidemic. It's a, it's a plague that is just, uh, it's destroying us because we, we're, we're jockeying so many things. And the, the preeminent things in the kingdom of God always seem to filter to the bottom. And we're so busy. And I would just implore you to just take a breath this summer and to just give some thought to all the things that you have going on and really just examine and say, am I prioritizing the things of God? That doesn't mean that everything else is bad. It doesn't mean that. You want to be well-rounded people and for goodness sakes, your pastor and your God want you involved and engaged in the community. I want you out there. God wants you out there. But you've got to be accomplishing that which God has called us to do. We can't negate the reality of Romans 12, where the Scripture says that we are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. That is a very astounding, powerful statement, that we are connected. You see, we, we grow out of each other. That's how we grow. And, and we are put together by God as a body, and you... you you're part of the body, whether you recognize it or not. You see, and we also have to realize that as we're waging war in our hearts against this, that the reality is, is that it's easy to stumble when you're not in community. It's easy to stumble right out of church. 
It's easy to just fall into this little habit where you miss church one day and then the next Sunday and the next Sunday and then pretty soon it just becomes this pattern. You've got to... You got, I mean, why is the Scripture so replete with warnings about this? Remember when we were in uh, Luke 17 and Jesus said, it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. Remember that? And remember that it was such a joyful morning to think about that. That was a bummer, man. Jesus is saying, look, it's going to come. Offenses are coming. There's nothing you can do about it. So just... Prepare yourself, brace yourself to deal with it. And how are you going to do that? You better engage yourself because otherwise you're going to stumble right out of church because it's easy to do. But it's difficult to stumble out of community. You know why? Because when you start stumbling out of community, people go with you and bring you back. But you know what we do? We blame everyone else. When we walk alone and we stumble out of church, it's everyone else's. It's always the church's fault, isn't it? Yeah, always. It is always astonishing to me that the, the, the people who are, are, see the church as unloving and uncaring are the, the people who never connected. They just never connected. They just wandered the halls and they were here on Sunday morning and we never saw them ever again. And that, that's the thing. You've got to take responsibility for yourself. You've got to be accountable and say, listen, it, I've got to be plugged in. The Scripture commands it. Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider one another that we might stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but to encourage, to exhort one another. And ever so much more as we see the day approaching. You see, when we're in authentic community, when we're in community with other people, there is a tangible relational connection that comes along with a built-in accountability in community. And therefore, that's why the Scripture is teaching us that we need this. Now, when we stumble out, when we go out, what's going to happen? I mean, we, there, most of us in here can attest to this. You know, you, you've, you were in church for a while, then you're out of church. Now you're back. Well, what happened when you were out of church? Well, I wasn't there. I don't know. But I know there's certain characteristics about it that always seem to be true. And, and there's certain people you don't want to listen to. You see, when someone in your, when, when a husband or a wife begins to stray out of church, they don't want to hear from their spouse. You know, the, the husband that starts playing golf after church and then it becomes an all-day Sunday thing. And then when the wife mentions that, it automatically becomes nagging. It automatically becomes a blow-up. And... And we tend to be a little sheepish and hesitant to talk to the people closest to us about the most important things, which is strange to me. It's strange to me when people call me and they say, can you talk to my wife? Can you talk to my husband? I said, what's going on? And I said, well, have you talked to him? And they're like, man, I can't. I'm like, you're married to him. You sleep in the same bed. You can't talk about this. But you see, what, what it is, is that we, it, when someone is, is, is listening to Satan, when sin is causing them to stray from the pack. Listen, you know who Judas didn't want to hear from? Judas didn't want to hear from those closest to him. No way. No way. Jesus told him to his face that he knew he was about to betray him. I don't know how much closer you can get. And what did he do? Turned up his nose and betrayed him anyway. Right? Yeah. And that's what we do. You know, we, 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 don't, we find it hard. You know, grown kids, adult children, they fall out of church and it grieves the heart of their parents. But yet the parents find it hard to go and talk to their children about that. To, to call them back because they know that it's emotionally charged, that it's going to be a, it's going to be a bad conversation, that it's not going to go well. You see, because, but you know who can talk to them? If, if they're in community, if, if, if your adult children are plugged into a, a close group, a, a cell group or a Sunday school class or something like that, and they begin to stray out of church, the people in their class can go to them and, and say things that you can't say. And there won't be shouting and screaming and arguing, will there? No. Because community comes with built-in accountability. 
And so oftentimes that can be restored when you're in communion. But when you're not, it, it poses an even greater threat. You see, when you stumble, and when I stumble, remarkably, what we need the most, we will desire the least. That's right. Sin is going to pervert all of our categories. So right now we're shaking our head and we're there. But let me tell you something. It could be tomorrow. And you find yourself on the other side of this fence. And suddenly, you know, you're disconnected. And what you need the most, you're not going to desire. You're not going to just go, oh, you know what I need to do? No, that's not the way that's going to work. Community is has got to be a priority. And then you've got to ask yourself, well, 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 what's the proximity of community? In other words, like, how does it really work? Well, let me tell you something about community. The community I'm talking about is not, it's not built in rows. It's built in circles. You're not going to build this kind of community sitting next to people. You're going to grow in your understanding of the, of the Word of God. You're going to grow in the community of a big fellowship, but that's not what I'm talking about. You're not going to grow intimate relationships and who you're sitting next to. You're just not. You know why? Because where where we are is one-way communication. That's not what I'm talking about. Genuine community comes in circles, small circles of people built around coming together and sharing life together. And it is absolutely critical that we prioritize this in our life. Well... Maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you say, well, I'm just not sold. Okay. Well, maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in a family that was fractured apart by sin. Maybe your mom and your dad split apart when you were growing up. Somebody walked away. Somebody turn their back on the family. The marriage disintegrated. So I understand how that feels. But have you ever considered, so many times I've looked back and I've thought to myself, what would my life have been like if my parents would have been Christians? What would my life have been like if my father was in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ? What if he had a group of men around him that held him accountable? That when he decided to walk out on his eight-year-old little boy and his six-year-old little girl, there was nobody there to say, hey, have you thought about this? Hey, is this a good idea? Have you weighed all the consequences of this? Wasn't there. How would your life have been different if your parents were in this kind of community? Some of you in this room right now are a living testimony because your parents were in this kind of community. It's rare, but some of you are. And you'd say, my life was so rich and so full because my parents were always plugged in. They didn't just attend church. They were involved. They were plugged into church. And so it has drastically, drastically marked your life for the good. So what about you? Are you just utterly and completely convinced that you've got all this together to such a degree that you just don't, maybe you don't need anybody's help? Okay. Are you also convinced that no one else in this room needs your help? Certainly, that can't be true. The Scripture says in Ecclesiastes, again, chapter 4, that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. talks about how if one falls, they're... Uh, one with a companion has someone to lift him up. But woe to the one who's alone when he falls. You see, that's the problem with the loner. The loner just doesn't think they're going to fall. And if they fall, they're going to be able to get themselves up. But that's just simply not the case. And he says, who will be there to help him up? Again, if, if two, if they lie down together, they're able to keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand the enemy. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's wisdom in that. And so if Jesus, if the Scripture, if a triune God, if, if, if what's happening between these two competing agendas is there illustrating for us 
God's desire for all of us to be engaged in community, then before we end this conversation, we just need to decide in advance how we're going to respond to it. For that, I want to draw your attention to what Jesus has to say at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And this will come up on the screen. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable. And he says something very interesting. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine. He's just said three chapters of the most profound things that have ever been spoken on earth. And he says, now, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain descends and the floods come and the winds blew and beat on that house, the house did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. He'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house, it fell and great was its fall. That Jesus would say that really the difference between those who are going to achieve and those who are going to collapse are those who do the things that he's commanded them to do. Understand, Judas knew. He knew what to do. He had heard and learned everything that everyone else did, but he'd never put it into practice. And what I'm trying to to get across to you this morning is, is that you put yourself in a very, very dangerous position today if you walk out of here as a knower and an understander, but not a doer. You must do. You must follow through. It's those who obey. Okay, Just understanding in your head is a dangerous place. Look at what the Scripture says in 1 John. These tests of knowing God, John gives us. And one of them is this. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I mean, that's about as direct as you can possibly be. If you know God, then you love one another. He who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. It's just that simple. You just simply can't say this morning, well, well, I, I know God, I'm a believer, but yet I don't love my brothers and sisters enough to engage my life with them. I, I, I'm going to rebel against the reality that Scripture says that God has, has placed me as part of a body. You just simply cannot do that. And furthermore, how in the world could you love people you don't know? And how could people who don't know you love you? It won't happen. So I say to the generation of Facebook friends, they're not your friends. I know they like you. But they won't be there when you fall. They're not going to be there in the hospital room. They're not going to be there beside you for the ups and the downs. They don't know you the way you were designed to be known. And you can fill yourself with counterfeits and you can have all the friends in the world and you can look at your little home page and just feel so good about your popularity. But they don't know you. I know that... A couple of years ago, one of the things that, that uh, was very instructive for us as we were going through this process of um, uh, spiritual gifts uh, assessment tests and looking at all these different spiritual gifts. And one of the things we did was we looked at the DISC uh, personality assessment. And I remember when we did that, one of the things I found so fascinating about a completely secular uh, test that tests your personality but is very interesting. Uh, it puts you in these categories of of uh, uh, four different categories. There's D, I, S, C. But in the course of that, uh, I read some information about that process. And it reminds me of what we're talking about here this morning, that when we're talking about who we really are and and discerning who we really are, uh, there's different... We have different components of our, our, our personality. And there's four of them. The first one is the arena you. You know what the arena you is? The arena you is the public persona. It's the it's it's what you know about me by coming here on Sunday mornings. You don't know me. You just know this arena me. 
And there's people in your life that they don't know you, but they just know you because they see you in a public setting. And so the only thing that they're ever exposed to is the arena you. And then when you move in a little closer, there's the mask you. The mask you uh, is the is the part of you that you know, but other people don't know. And so you have people in your life, you know, but you're hiding it. And so you can come to church and you can let everyone see the masked you. But you hide the reality that's within. And so you only allow people to see that which you want to see. The rest of it is, is kept secret. And so you, you've convinced yourself that you need to you use the mask to protect yourself, to protect yourself. Here's what Scripture would say in 2 Corinthians 4 about that, is that we have, been, uh, we have renounced the hidden things of shame and we're not walking in craftiness nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See, the masked you is, is, a, uh, is in opposition to God's will. Then there's the blind you. That's the reverse of the masked you. The blind you, that's the, the part of us where... There's things about you that you don't know, but there's people around you that know. There's blind spots in your life. You know how uncomfortable that is. You know, there's things that people are like, man, you know. And unfortunately, because they're not really your close friends, they're probably your Facebook friends. Behind your back, they talk about all the weird things that you do, but they never tell you. And you don't realize how weird you really are. See, you're afraid of community, but you're really the weirdo that's going to be in the group. And you didn't even know that. Because you have blind spots. It's the blind you. And then fourthly, there's the potential you. And I think uh, spiritually, the potential you is, is the you that God knows. But that you have yet to discover. You see, when, when I drew that card that night in that first small group. And that wonderful game of Bible trivia. I had no clue of the potential me. Not in 10 million years could anybody have seen what God had in store. I wonder about you. How are you going to discover the potential you? Together. I've walked here with you consistently. For 20 years. And that's how it has come to pass. It didn't happen with me by myself. It happened with you in community as you worked in me and I in you. Proverbs 18 says that a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Goes on in Proverbs 27 to say that iron sharpens iron as a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. As we do life together, we sharpen each other, we build each other up. See, when you think about it, you think about, well, what did you do last summer on Sunday nights? Now, the vast majority of us in this room, we just immediately know exactly what we did. We were in community with each other. We were in connect groups. That's what we did. It was the most successful summer connect we've ever had. But there's some of you in here that didn't participate. And my challenge for you, here's my question. What did you do? What did you do for those six or eight weeks during the summer? And I bet you, you don't even know. Because it didn't account to anything. It didn't amount to a thing. You see, community is, is a, it's a cumulative thing. It's like vitamins. I take vitamins, but you know, if I go to the store and buy a, a jar of fish oil and go home and take one, I'm not, ooh, I feel awesome. You have to consistently take it for it to do any good. You can't just meet with some folks one time and have community. It doesn't work like that. You have to meet. You know, community comes in, in, in small deposits over the course of time. You grow. You learn together. You sharpen each other over the course of time. It's, it's like a savings account. 
You have to use it. You have to be a part of it. It's like your exercise equipment. I mean, when you first brought it home, you were already in shape, weren't you? Then what happened? Now clothes are hanging on it. Right on. I know. Not because it's me. No, I don't. Your spouse has told me. Yeah. That's what happens. So this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to examine your heart and look at these competing agendas and say, where am I? Where am I? Am I a person who, like Judas, has just been in the proximity of the goodness of God? That I, that I, I know a lot of things in my head. I've been close to a lot of things. I've been part of a lot of things. I've seen and I've even experienced the power of God. But I've never, ever surrendered my life to Him. Now listen very closely. Judas really lived. And he really walked with Jesus. And he really, literally went to hell. Be careful. Be careful that you first and foremost have community with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't be one who shouts, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things in your name? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. You were there. You were around it. But you never were of it. Today marks an opportunity in your life to come and declare your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. To be born again into His family. Do you, you go home today and you begin to read the New Testament. You read the, all the epistles in the New Testament. And how all of Paul talks about every one of his companions as his beloved brothers. You see the family that is so strong. God's inviting you to be a part of his family. And if you are saved this morning, are you in community? Are you known? Do people know you? Do you know them? Or will you open up your home for your brothers and sisters? Will you be a part of what God desires to do in your life and in the lives of others? Yeah, there there may be some uncomfortable moments. That's what comes with love. That's what comes with love. I owe you an enormous apology. The great pain of my heart this morning is that there's a whole multitude of you in this room that I love with all my heart. And you believe that you're in community. And you've done exactly what we as a church have asked you to do, but we've failed you. I have failed you. Because if you are sitting in a Sunday school class with 25 other people, that's not community. It's not. You can hide. And the reason why your teacher's always flustered and burned out and why you can't ever get together and do things is because it's, there's too much. There's too many of you. And we are working with everything we have got to launch new classes. And we'll be launching two or three new adult classes in the coming months. And hopefully there's more on the other side because... It's not community. 25 people are not having community. You need to be in a small group of a dozen people, 14 people, where you can be known and where you can be loved. Because for the most part, you just come in with your mask and your blind spots. So connect Connect. It's an opportunity for us together. 
Let's stand, bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And God, we ask now that you'd move as only you can. Lord, just so grateful for this community. So grateful for... There's so many people in this room who love each other with such deep bonds. Such abiding presence in one another's lives. It's such a glorious thing. Father God, I pray that that would be the experience of all of us, Lord. That we would all be in a place where it's safe. It's safe to stumble and to fall and to skin our knee. It's okay to struggle and to suffer. We're in this together. But Lord, you, you are our heavenly father. You are the one who will restore us and put us back into community. This is all your grand idea. So help us this morning to lay aside our agenda and to humble ourselves under your authority and allow you to work mightily in our lives. God, now as we just open this altar of invitation, God, will you do what only you can do? And we're going to give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to come and pray, I invite you to.